Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I hope you've been enjoying recent episodes, and I hope you enjoyed the first episode in the new thematic art series. We'll get our next episode of that series next time. But today we're going to talk about the gold rush and the birth of San Francisco as a city. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and as always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. Let's get into today's episode. San Francisco is one of the most unique cities in the world. The Fresno writer, who also lived in San Francisco for a time, William Saroyan, said it best that San Francisco itself is art. Every block is a short story, every hill a novel, every home a poem. My time there was a few short years, but when I think back to it, you do have this feeling like you're out on the edge of the world, culturally and geographically. At the same time, the city is constantly remaking itself. There's a sense that anything can happen. The potential embodied in many of the movements of the city's history gives you the sense that stuff can change quickly. And in the same way that the city was seemingly formed out of nothing, it can also be lost as well. Before I go any further waxing poetic, though, let me cut to the chase here. We're going to discuss a lot of disparate elements today which on the surface seem unrelated, but they illustrate the point that the history of a place can be deeply circumstantial and seemingly arbitrary. Why does this this exist there and there, that, etc.? But uncovering these fossils shows the line from the flood. These fossils show the cataclysmic event that brought them into existence, i.e. the gold rush. I guess what I'm saying is that San Francisco is a city that happened, and many of the early events of its history were accidents of history that came to define a culture and ethos, some for good and some for ill. With that said, let's go. San Francisco might be called an instant city. Before the influx of people from the gold rush, San Francisco, called then Yerba Buena, had a population of a couple hundred. In 1846, the population was about 200. A year later, the population had grown to nearly 500. And by the end of 1849, San Francisco had a population of 40,000. Sudden influxes of large populations bring large problems and well. Uh, And when we say influxes, we mean that nearly every month in those years, thousands of immigrants were getting off ships averaging around 4,000 a month. This sudden influx of population would translate into a slapped-together city that would bring about results that we could only expect with a city that has been put together as quickly as possible with the only end in mind of making as much money as possible, as fast as possible. Many of the ships that arrived uh, were discarded just a few days after they landed, San Francisco was the port, the entryway to the gold mines that were further inland. These ships would then later serve other functions, including jails, which we discussed on a previous episode, as well as other commercial establishments. They were dismantled to use the lumber to build structures in the newly founded capital. 
Let's now talk about some of the prefabs uh, that were used during the gold rush. Given this giant influx of immigrants, the city needed to develop a housing stock in order to house all of these new residents. However, there were no construction companies in the area to develop homes. So they had to buy these houses remotely and have them shipped. Most of the major metropolitan areas in the East Coast, including Boston, Philadelphia, and New York, made, produced, and shipped houses to San Francisco. In 1849, New York shipped 5,000 prefabricated homes to San Francisco. San Francisco also had homes shipped from China. These prefab houses from China included materials, some of the tools, as well as a Chinese carpenter to help assemble these homes when they did arrive. Iron structures were also used but were less common than the wood prefab. Eventually, as the gold rush slowed down, the surplus of these prefab homes were sent onto places like Hawaii to be sold as a discount. Um, these are very early, but uh, examples that uh, track homes, in a sense, are inherent to San Francisco, which is ironic because uh, part of the feature of San Francisco uh, is the beautiful, iconic homes, uh, but we don't often think about the origin of the city beginning with track prefab homes that were assembled on the fly, but that's how the city began. And given the slapped together nature of these living conditions, it makes sense that disease would spread rapidly across the city. In my mind, these conditions resemble those of a refugee camp, where people are suddenly crammed into tight living quarters without proper sanitation or infrastructure to support this large population. Many of the diseases that we discussed on the episode about camp life will repeat themselves here, so I won't belabor the point, but just to say that the nature of the city was such that it became a breeding ground for diseases to spread, which is ironic, of course, because San Francisco's manage of COVID-19 over the past year and a half has been highly successful. Uh, times change. One of the most important and central neighborhoods that emerged during the gold rush in San Francisco is Chinatown. The first immigrants from China to San Francisco were said to have arrived around 1848. The news of the gold rush, like we said during previous episodes, had arrived in China quickly after it was discovered. Some Chinese immigrants saw that San Francisco was serving as a kind of filling station before heading inland to the gold mine. Um, so they began to set up shops in the Chinatown area. Uh, but the reason that Chinatown ultimately exploded and why many Chinese miners returned to the city uh, was due to a nativist law that sought to prevent Chinese immigrants from benefiting from the gold being extracted in California. Miners who saw the wave of Chinese immigrants arriving to mine alongside them, these were typically European or American miners, uh, they grew resentful and ultimately uh, helped to pass the Foreign Miners License Law, charging all non-U.S. citizens $20 per month to mine in California. Translating that to modern dollars, that's roughly $700 a month. For a poor immigrant miner who dropped everything to come and strike it rich, this would amount to too much for any one person to afford and still make money from mining itself. In addition to the financial burden of this racist tax, Chinese miners also had to deal with prejudice, racism, and violence from fellow miners, which led to the ultimate result of Chinese miners leaving the mines along the Sierra Nevadas to return to San Francisco. 
Thus, we had a massive Chinese exodus in 1850 from the gold mining fields to San Francisco to instead profit off of the miners seeking supplies, rest, and fun in the only major city around. The tax on foreign miners would actually be revoked by the state because it was considered too onerous and began to affect European miners as well. But the desired effect uh, of shifting power away from Chinese immigrants in the mining areas was successful. But it also led to, and ironically, one of the most vibrant Chinatowns in the United States in San Francisco. Um, and that is ultimately an accident of history, but one bred by prejudice uh, that ultimately created a powerful and vibrant community. San Francisco had a reputation during the gold rush, and there's one demographic that has received its fair amount of ink, uh, regaling its history, which is the history of prostitution in the city. Gold Rush San Francisco is a far away land from the modern world where we live, where books like The Right to Sex discuss legal protections for prostitutes. Like many businesses that saw the opportunity that the influx of mostly male immigrants brought to the burgeoning society in California, the growing prostitution industry flourished during the gold rush. However, prostitutes were degraded and oppressed groups in this area. Many of the women were participating in this industry against their will, and the demographics of prostitutes ranged from Chinese immigrant women, oppressed native Latina women, as well as kidnapped and enslaved Caucasian women. Before the gold rush, prostitution did exist, but was not organized in any sense of the word. Prostitution typically existed within higher-up California families and typically involved indigenous women. In the famous book, Two Years Before the Mast, situations were recorded where native men would prostitute their wives to sailors and split the money between them. The factors that made San Francisco ripe for a growing prostitution industry was the gender ratio being lopsided toward men. One source cites the ratio of upwards as 50 to 1. The expanding wealth coming in from the gold fields and the lack of regulation in the city due to the city quickly expanding to accommodate a giant influx of people. This last point is important to understand about the early culture of San Francisco. People saw, again to reiterate this point, the city as a temporary oasis on their journey toward paradise, acquiring as much wealth as possible before returning home to live a life of relaxation. Squatters or people staying in a place temporarily are unlikely to spend a lot of time developing complex systems of regulation. Moreover, given that these 49ers viewed California as a place to pillage and leave, they were likely to use that lens to think about human relationships as well. There's also some sense of anonymity. In a world where everyone is a stranger, reputation matters little. In this sense, the ethics might be similar to Las Vegas. What happens here stays here. This would also affect how the city was managed and the growth and the expansion and the lack of services. Where I live in California in the Central Valley, there's a constant push and pull with growth and expansion. And as you know, as a city expands, new services are needed to maintain those areas of the city. New streets to maintain, expanded domain for emergency services to cover trash, sanitation, etc. 
We see the lack of sanitation and overrun emergency services like fire and the number of fires that occurred early in the years of the city. All this to say is the city, for many, many reasons, was ripe for a growing prostitution industry. And when we talk about early prostitution services, we are talking about mostly Latino women for obvious demographic reasons. Within the city, prostitution began as an upper-class predilection, uh, with prostitutes being dressed in fancy clothes and going to only certain clubs within the city. This was likely due to simple supply and demand issues, given that women were in short supply, the power, in some sense, was within the suppliers. While there's a power dynamic here, that does not mean that women had the power in the situations with their customers, but rather they had their choice between customers. The venue for these sexual exchanges were often at gold rush casinos. These women functioned in and around the card tables. Their official roles were such as decoys to entertain men as well as waiters to serve them drinks. Beyond their official duties, women would transact with men individually within the context of the casino. The casino allowed women to transact in a somewhat safe environment. They often had rooms for women to do their business. Within the casino world, there was in fact a hierarchy with some casinos seen as higher status casinos. Women may start in lower class casinos and work their way up to higher status casinos. Beyond casinos, there was also more elite establishments called parlor houses. Parlor houses were exclusive forms of brothels that were usually financed by wealthy gamblers and casino owners. These houses were run by madams who were prostitutes but would not transact customers themselves in their own brothels. Instead, the madam worked as someone to collect payments from the client. There was a general and distinct fear around the city by women who were not prostitutes that they would be taken and absorbed into this industry. We will close this episode by looking at the Committee of Vigilance. Again, we've been talking today about what happens when a city forms without order or a plan. We get interesting outcomes. It also helps to explain why things are the way they are now. The Committee of Vigilance formed in the same way that uh, many of the other things formed that we talked about today because of disorganization and a lack of services like police and fire. This lack of services uh, forced citizens to step up and fill that space. The first committee was formed in 1851 to protect citizens from groups of vagrants or outlaws, essentially people threatening the community. The first leader of this group of concerned citizens was the famous Sam Brannan, the Mormon from Sacramento that helped propel this whole movement of influx of people to California. The committee had its own enforcement team and justice system. Punishments for crimes might include lynchings, whippings, and deportations. Some aspects of the committee were secretive, including the use of symbols and secret bells to alert members to gather. The members of these committees were usually or always white and typically were skilled artisans or shop owners. Depending on how you viewed the role, whether it was a move to seize power or an altruistic endeavor to protect a city that was overrun by corruption and slapped together infrastructure, was likely whether or not you were protected or targeted. One of the main crimes that was targeted during this time was arson, and typically the people being protected from arson 
were those who had the most to lose, i.e. landowners. Are these committees early forms of NIMBY pioneers, or an organized mob, or an out-of-control neighborhood watch group? Or do they tell us something about the beating heart of a city that values property over human life? These are questions, not contentions. Hopefully these disparate and contingent elements of a city's history illustrate what I hinted at the beginning of this episode. How arbitrary elements like a nativist law taxing certain minors, a lopsided gender ratio, and the lack of emergency services, whether intentional or not, shape the history and future of a city. We'll see you next time.